Thanks for tuning in to Mysteries of the Mind, a podcast revealing the way our unconscious minds shape our lives. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Bader. I've been thinking a lot about the uproar caused by the images and stories that we all saw and heard of toddlers and children caged at the border. And what it was exactly that was so incendiary about these stories and images. The uproar about forced family separations, after all, spanned the political spectrum. Christian evangelicals, the UN Commission on Human Rights, several Republican lawmakers, and even the Pope were all upset and angry. But I was thinking about the fact that we didn't and don't see the same degree of passion about the children, oh, who were about to lose their health insurance or the heartbreaking plight of latchkey kids raised in families headed by single mothers working for stagnant wages, barely able to make ends meet, or children raised by parents addicted to opiates. These kids will never appear on the cover of Time magazine. The media, I guess, just doesn't cover what Richard Sennett and Jonathan Cobb once called the hidden injuries of class. The topic du jour then uh, was about Russia and Robert Mueller, and of course today it's about impeachment. And as the news rolls out, the left and right inevitably settle back into their own tribal tents. So why doesn't the plight of the 16 million kids currently being raised in poverty elicit the outrage that these children at the border do? Why exactly did so many people seem to wake up to the cruelty of Trump and the Republican Party only when immigrant families were broken up? See, the abstract facts of poverty, social injustice, and the unequal distribution of wealth don't elicit the deep psychological reflexes, I think, that are triggered by the stories and pictures of real panicked and grief-stricken children and their parents. The former is suffering at a distance. The latter is up close and highly personal. Ultimately, I think that our moral outrage reflects the universal importance of attachment in human life, the central importance of the earliest connections between parents, especially mothers and children. We know quite well, uh, of course, that any disruption to such ties in the course of development result in tremendous grief and distress, and if the rupture is great enough, it causes significant trauma that indelibly damages kids' brain development and psyches. Research has shown, in fact, that significant disruptions of attachment result in later life in an increase in cardiovascular disease, anxiety disorders, addiction, criminality, depression, obesity, and suicide. I believe that we react so strongly to stories of broken attachments because all of us have experienced, even in the best of circumstances, some version, some degree of exactly such a loss. When we see it on television, it resonates with unconscious reservoirs of grief and trauma in all of us. So let me explain this. See, even in the best of circumstances, growing up invariably involves some degree of loss. Losses attendant on separation from our caretakers dog our tracks throughout development. For every step forward, there's a letting go, a loss that has to be mourned. We learn to walk, but we also miss the lap. 
We assert our wills and defy our parents, but we also miss surrendering to their care and protection. We might eagerly leave our parents behind when we go away to school, but we then often complain of homesickness. We further relive these separations when we become parents as we watch our children grow up and need us less and less over time. And of course, everyone has to deal with loss when they or their loved ones face the ultimate separation of death. So loss is normal. However, since most families have at least a touch of dysfunction, these painful feelings are often heightened by psychological conflict. For example, in some families, children grow up feeling guilty about leaving parents behind or doing better than their parents, and thus they come to experience separations as tragic. Such children might then hold on and become fearful of letting go and growing up. Uh, because growing up comes to feel especially sort of sad. Later on, such feelings are re-evoked when as parents, their own children leave them, and on and on it goes. In many other families, parents are either physically or emotionally absent or neglectful. In these circumstances, children are forced to cope with great feelings, of course, of loss and abandonment. They feel bereft, abandoned, and either cover it up with a defensive stoicism or get into dependent relationships in order to put a Band-Aid on the problem. But the underlying feelings of grief don't go away. Each of us has within ourselves a reservoir of grief, longing, and other painful affects. Such feelings trigger our defenses, and we often get angry, even indignant in response. You know, isn't it true that anger often masks sadness? We manage these feelings more or less well, I suppose. We develop coping strategies that enable us to work and love and raise families in ways that are more or less successful. Feelings of loss or, or grief don't necessarily make us mentally ill. In fact, sometimes they enable us to empathize with others who are suffering similar distress. They may enable us to better comfort and protect our own children in order to avoid repeating the traumas of our childhood. But again, these feelings don't go away. So what does this have to do with the public's reaction to the travesties resulting from Trump's zero-tolerance policy? Well, simply put, when we see children mistreated and orphaned at the border, pictures of a child wailing in response to being taken away from her mother or being fenced off in some cold shelter, we identify with both that child's loss of his or her parents as well as the parents' loss of their child. We quite naturally are outraged and protest and we want to rescue those who are suffering. Our own warded-off pain is activated by the suffering of these families. Now, if attachment, loss, and empathy weren't reason enough to account for the public outrage at Trump's border separations, the fact that these kids are intrinsically innocent makes the provocation much greater into a perfect storm. We almost always view children, you see, as innocent. This is why child sexual abuse is so emotionally incendiary to most people, even hardened convicts. That little immigrant girl crying at her mother's feet, unable to get her attention because the mother's being interrogated, the depictions of children in cages, stories of staff being forbidden to hold or touch the children for whom they're caring, accounts of 
parents freed from jail, unable to find out where their kids have been relocated or even whether or not they're alive, they all impale us in especially painful ways because innocent beings, children, are being made to suffer even though they've done nothing wrong. Their intrinsic innocence enable them to make legitimate claims on us for protection and care, and we howl in protest at the injustice of it all. See, think about it this way. Guilty people deserve punishment. Innocent people deserve love and protection. This is why, of course, right-wing commentators cynically impugned the characters of parents who brought their kids to the U.S., or they made cynical claims that the children were merely pawns of drug smugglers. If the adults are guilty, then we shouldn't be making such a big deal about their pain, so goes the right-wing narrative. Right-wing extremists like Ann Coulter even tried to, tried to tarnish our perceptions of the orphaned kids by calling them, quote, child actors. Coulter's real intention should be noted and obvious here, namely that the objects of our empathy are not innocent and thus not deserving of our indignation. And I think this celebration of innocence is all the more salient because in our society, you know, based as it is on an imaginary system of meritocracy and shot through with some version of the Protestant work ethic and the, you know, Horatio Alger individualist, none of us is ever allowed to really be innocent. It's just hard for most of us to feel really innocent. Instead, we're made to feel responsible for whatever pain um, and suffering afflicts us. Even when we plainly are innocent, we have trouble accepting that. And instead, here's the idea, we project onto children the innocence that we ourselves are forbidden to feel. Isn't it true that most of us, you know, are burdened in some way by painful feelings of guilt and responsibility? But see, we look upon young children as free of such burdens in a way that we secretly but unsuccessfully covet. We idealize and protect the innocence outside of ourselves, the innocence found in children, in part because we can't locate and defend a sense of innocence inside ourselves. When people do a bad thing to a child, they're exploiting the inherent vulnerability of an innocent child who can't defend him or herself and who depends on, adult, on adults for protection. As with child abuse, the very people in authority who should be looking out for the child are the ones inflicting pain. Such a betrayal not only evokes similar but long-forgotten experiences in all of our backgrounds, our own backgrounds, but it tarnishes the cherished ideal of innocence that all of us wish could remain untouched and unsullied. And as a result, we react with vicarious indignation. It therefore makes sense that forced family separations should be psychologically explosive and should have triggered widespread outrage. When deep feelings are evoked in the political arena, especially when they involve children and families, public opinion can shift rapidly. Now, such sentiment wasn't enough to fuel a political movement because raw feeling ebbs and flows, and unless it's embedded in structures and organizations that are set up to gain power, it can be ephemeral.
And in fact, we saw conservative forces dishonestly spin a false counter-narrative about immigration being really about crime and national security, not morality. By so doing, they hope to create a situation in which the issue appears to be, you know, another typical clash between the left and the right, between Democrats and Republicans, rather than a universal human tragedy perpetrated by Donald Trump and the Republican Party. Still, the spontaneous outpouring of emotional distress and moral outrage and political activism that resulted in response to Trump's and Sessions' uh, nativist immigration policies remind us that the vast majority of people are capable of empathy for those who are powerless. Masses of people can stand up for the victims of a tyrannical government. Progressives should take heart from this and figure out how to elicit empathy for the millions of children and their parents who suffer from social and economic injustice in our country and are every bit as innocent as these families at the border. You know, Ellie Wiesel argued that the opposite of love, art, faith, and life is really indifference. When we lead from the heart, expressing our most fundamental longings, we are not only better for it, but we have a better chance of changing the world. Thanks for listening to Mysteries of the Mind podcast. To learn more about how your unconscious mind really works, please tune in next time. And be sure to visit Dr. Bader's website at michaelbader.com.